our guest today is the eminent scholar of the Arab-Israeli conflict, Norman Finkelstein, perhaps the man that knows more on the issue than anyone else in the world. I know you'll find this as engaging and informative as we did, and you'll also have a laugh. Episode 97 of the Scottish Liberty Podcast with me, Anthony Samroff, and him, Tam Laird, and Norman Finkelstein. Well, I'm really pleased to speak to you. I think I've become aware of your work about 10 years ago, so this is a real privilege for me, and I definitely found you to often demystify things that I found quite mystifying. So thank you for that. And my idea is to just go through the claims that we often hear, and you can just go through them and tell us true, false, partially true, or whatever. Does that sound good to you? That sounds fine to me. Okay, good stuff. I'll start. It's Tom here. Uh, Norman, thank you again for coming on this uh, podcast. Could you define for us what you mean when you will be talking about Palestine and Palestinians? What's your definition of that? Some people would say, you know, what's the difference? Jordanians, Palestinians, why are they different people? Well... Uh, There are many ways you can approach that question. You can approach it historically, you can approach it sociologically, you can approach it anthropologically. I think for our purposes, and given the tenor of the times in which we live, the proper way to approach it is to refer to international law. Under international law, the Palestinians exist as a people, given that they exist as a people, they have under international law the right to self-determination, and then there are people, the Palestinian people, they have, like any other people, the right to self-determination, and then the question is where? And the international community has defined the Palestinian people's, what they call, unit of self-determination as being the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and Gaza. Now, I'm not going to get into a quarrel here with those who want to argue that that is unfair, illegitimate, and so forth. That is the international law definition, and I don't think it's possible politically to reach beyond what international law has decided. Okay. Great, thank you. So if we start at the beginning, the narrative is that Israel was founded as a state and as soon as it was born, it was the victim of an unprovoked attack by five Arab states. Is there anything wrong with that, or is it insufficient in context to put it that way? Well, to begin with, I eliminate from my vocabulary certain terminology. Uh, Among the terms which I do not accept as having any intellectual validity are the terms narrative or discourse. Okay. We are not talking about people's perceptions or self 
descriptions. We're trying to find truth. Now, truth is obviously elusive, that's for sure, and there's no real possibility, given that we're mortals and we're flawed as mortals, there's no real possibility of achieving what one might call absolute truth. But I think truth should be our objective, our goal, and not to reduce the pursuit of truth to your narrative versus my narrative. <clears throat> Having parents who passed through World War II and the Nazi Holocaust, I certainly have no interest whatsoever in the narrative of the guards in my parents' concentration camps. I'm interested in the truth, not in narratives. Having said that, as a preliminary remark, um, let's get back to your question. Obviously, in any interpretation of any historical event, there is the issue of where do you begin? So let's take a comparable case before we get to Palestine. The question of the Korean War. So some people say the Korean War began when the North invaded the South in 1953. But other historians say that there was a civil war going on in Korea and one phase or stage in that civil war, the troops assembled on the north attacked the troops assembled in the south. So what's called the Korean War is, if you take the longer view, one phase, one large battle for sure, yeah. about a million North Koreans were killed in the course of the North Korea, uh, Korean War, but it's still, from a historical point of view, it's one phase in a long-standing, long-term uh, civil war. So in the same regard, it seems to me that if you start with 1948, you leave out the preliminary contextual history, which then... Uh, distorts what happened in 48. Okay. You have to see that there was a people settled in Palestine for a sustained period of time. At some point, it's usually dated from the last two decades of the 19th century, a foreign movement embarked on a endeavor to create a Jewish state in Palestine, that then gave rise to indigenous resistance to that endeavor called the Zionist Project. And what happened in 1947 through 49 was one phase in that modern history. As to the actual sequence of events after World War II in particular, although the Zionist movement begins at the end of the 19th century, after World War II in particular, 
and the fantastical losses that the Jewish people suffered during World War II, the Zionist movement was more determined than ever to establish a Jewish state where Jews, who it was felt had been abandoned during World War II, would have a refuge or homeland of their own. The indigenous population was woefully unprepared for this last round in a long-term conflict. The Zionist movement was prepared, determined, disciplined, well-financed, at this point, well-financed, and they were able, at this point, to prevail against the will of of the indigenous population, And uh, then there was resistance. Initially, it was a civil war within Palestine. The resistance begins roughly at the end of 1947, when the UN General Assembly passes the partition resolution. In this civil war phase, the indigenous population was pretty effectively and quickly defeated, but then that phase was expanded in 1948 when several Arab armies from neighboring countries entered the picture, except for a few weeks, maybe two or three weeks, there was never a serious doubt that the Zionist forces, now the state of Israel, would prevail in this conflict. There were a few weeks where you might describe it as touch and go, but aside from those initial few weeks, the Zionist forces, uh, now the state of Israel, Israeli forces easily were able to prevail, and the, the intent of the neighboring Arab countries with their piddling armies uh, was overall not to destroy the state of Israel, but it was a land grab by these neighboring Arab countries to get for themselves some of the territory that was allocated for the Jewish state. So Jordan when it invaded Palestine, and Jordan's army was the only serious army among the Arab states, and even that was unserious, but it was the only serious army. Uh, Its intent was not to uh, nip in the bud the Jewish state, but rather its intent was to take parts of the West Bank, which were allocated for the Arab state in the partition resolution to take it for themselves. And the other crucial outcome of the war was that in the area that was allocated for the state of Israel and then the expanded borders, which Israel won in the course of the war, 
about 90% of the Arab indigenous population was expelled, and they became the Palestinian refugees. Okay. You say expelled, and I'm sure that there's truth in that. What do you say to the, the suggestion that a large amount, something like up to 68%, left on the instruction of the Arab League in order to get out the way? We're coming in, get out before you get hurt. There's no evidence to the claim that the Arab League gave any orders for the indigenous population of Palestine to flee. There are local cases where, in accordance actually with international law, where there were local battles, the Arab commanders instructed civilians to leave the scene of battle. Right. That's, that's what the law is. You're not supposed to endanger civilians in the course of a battle. And in addition, there were large-scale reports of rapes committed by Israeli soldiers, and it was another incentive for the local commanders to exhort civilians, in particular women, to not go into flight, but to remove themselves from the battlefield in the course of armed hostilities. And even there, it's pretty minimal. It's pretty minimal. We're talking about a handful of documented cases. There's no point in going through this town by town, village by village, neighborhood by neighborhood. The overall picture is clear. The Zionist movement was fully aware that you couldn't create a Jewish state in an area which was overwhelmingly Arab. The only way you can create what was called a stable Jewish majority is to eliminate the indigenous population. They exploited the opportunity of the chaos that normally ensues in the war. They exploited the quote-unquote fog of war to carry out the expulsion, which, as Benny Morris put it, the Israeli historian Benny Morris put it, was, he said, the idea of transfer, which is what the Zionists called expulsion, was inbuilt and inherent in Zionism. And that's true. Okay. We always uh, hear the claim from defenders of Israel on YouTube debates where the battle seems to generally be fought that the majority of Palestinians left because they were exhorted to. Is that just something that um, Zionists made up to put, I know you hate the word, Norman, but to push a narrative that would be... Can we just call it to push a lie? Okay, so you're, okay. Saying, you're saying that it's a lie. Okay, that's what I wanted to clarify because we hear that all the time. The same thing said over and over again and I just want to get the truth of these there, matters. There, there's no evidence for that. Okay, there's, I mean, the, the, the only evidence, it could be, again, you, you say a you know, Zionist line, it's perfectly possible. The only one I'm aware of is, is the quote that gets bandied around by Azam Pasha, you know, where he says, brothers Arabs of Palestine, leave your land. And it's been shown to be a forgery. Okay. Okay, so they just make these things up. Right. Listen, imagine the context 
of the Nazi Holocaust, you were to use the language, well, the Nazi narrative is that there was a Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy mm. that was out to strangle and destroy uh, Germany, and therefore the Germans had to ex you know, exterminate and blah, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Whereas the, the uh, other narrative is, would you <laughs> accept that? Uh, I wouldn't accept that. No, I wouldn't personally. I fear that there's uh, <laughs> there is the rise of uh, certain revisionist, revisionist yeah. especially with the alt right and things like that. Some of them seem to have sympathies for that particular that point of view. Yeah, which is quite it's scary. Not a, listen, there, everybody has a right to a point of view. There's a a flat Earth society that yeah, has right. a point of view. Yeah. The question is, do you dignify it? with the title of a narrative where you just say where's the evidence if you can't present the evidence then what you're saying is nuts okay okay thank you by the way on the arab refugee question yeah the person who originally disproved all the lies about the arab armies was an irish person you know that i didn't know that no it was erskine children c-h-i-l-d-e-r-s okay right so if we talk about the following conflicts between Israel and its neighbours. Now that I, now that you've um, de-vocabularised me of the term narrative, uh, I don't really know how to... You can say claim, claim. Okay, claim. Claim. That's You're happy with the claim. Much, okay. That's much better. So, just as briefly as we can, through the, each of the Arab-Israeli conflicts and what Israel claims happened as opposed to what, through your research, you've discovered. The quick rundown, I think there's five of them, or four. I don't think this is useful, okay. because okay. we're going to have to give answers which um, will take up too much time. Sure. Right, let's just summarize it as follows. The most exhaustive study done on Israel's various wars is a book by a fellow named Ze'ev Maoz, M-A-O-Z. The book is entitled Defending the Holy Land. Defending the Holy Land. It's uh, a very exhaustive study, and it's based on all the available scholarly literature in many languages. The conclusion he reached is, hold on for one moment. I'm getting too old. And I've written too many books. Okay. I can't remember where I wrote anything anymore. Hold it. Well, if you're getting too old, Norman, it's definitely better that you've written too many books than too few. I don't know about that. <laughs> I could have had a good life. I could have been like Jared Kushner. Roamed the world as a diplomat and not even being able to tie my shoe. Right. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't have taken so much flack and criticism, that's for sure. Yeah, but you know what? Jared Kushner is too stupid to even know how stupid he is. <laughs> no, really, it's true. There are stupid people who are painfully aware of their stupidity and therefore, for example, recruit others to compensate for the fact that they are congenital morons. In the case of Jared Kushner, 
He doesn't have, he doesn't even possess sufficient self-awareness to be aware that he's a complete imbecile. But that's... <laughs> What was well, it? What was it in particular that burnt your toast about this guy? Was there any one fact, thing? The fact or just his mere existence. And by the way, don't hold back, Norman. Tell us what you really think. This this guy is like a complete parasite. He has never fucking done a single fucking thing in his fucking <laughs> loser life. Everything he did was because of his father's money. Do you know how he got into Harvard? Go look it up. <laughs> the year he applied to Harvard, his father gave Harvard $2.3 million. That's, that's a chunk how, of change. Yeah, that's, what he, that's how he got into Harvard. He, he walks around in these Ralph Lauren suits <laughs> like he's fucking, I don't know, a member of the Bee Gees. Hasn't done anything. You know, not only couldn't he find Israel on the map, not only couldn't he find Saudi on the map, not only couldn't he find find the West Bank or Gaza on the map. <laughs> well, if he's looking at an Arab map, he won't find <laughs> Israel in there, probably. <laughs> <laughs> that was Islamophobic, but we'll move on. <laughs> Not only couldn't he find the Middle East on a map, I dare say he couldn't find the planet Earth on a map. <laughs> Do you think he could possibly find his ass with both hands? <laughs> and a GPS? <laughs> well, here's how, this is how Zaev Maaz concludes. Okay. Exhaustive study. Uh, is exhaustive study on Jared Kushner? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Look, an exhaustive study okay. of Jared Kushner can fit on a bazooka bubblegum comic. <laughs> okay. But you don't know what bazooka yeah, bubblegum is. I remember those, bazooka <laughs> Joe. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. He concludes, Israel's war experience is a story of folly, recklessness, and self-made traps. None of the wars, because you were going to go through five with me. Okay. So this is an easy, condensed reply to all the questions you assembled as you stayed up into the wee hours of the morning preparing to interrogate me. Right. None of the wars, dash, with a possible exception of the 1948 War of Independence, Dash, was what Israel refers to as a war of necessity. They were all wars of choice or folly. They were all wars of choice or folly. Okay, so in, in his conclusion, there was no real evidence that Egypt was going to attack. There is, Israel has never fought a war of self-defense with the possible exception of 1948. End of story. Okay, why do you say possible? 
Well, because war in 1948 was more ambiguous. I mean, we have to be honest about the facts. And I'm not afraid of the facts. Okay. Uh, in 1948, in the course of that war, Israel did lose 1% of its population. There were 6,000 losses. It was uh, very costly. There were 600,000 Jews in Palestine. It was costly. Now, it is true that it was pretty clear, except, as I said, for those two or three weeks, yeah. that Israel was going to win. But it wasn't a walkover. 67 was a walkover. 73, no, it was not a, wa a walkover. Um, it was uh, probably, there were at least 2,000 Israeli combatant losses, and it may have been even as high as 3,000, though the usual figure uh, is 2,000. On the other hand, 73 wasn't a war of self-defense. I mean, you have to remember there wasn't a single country in the world, not one, not even the United States, which condemned the e e Egyptian attack in 1973, which was designed to reclaim the territory that Israel occupied but refused to withdraw from, namely the Egyptian Sinai. So right. the war of self-defense in 1967, excuse me, 73, was fought by Egypt. It was defending its territorial sovereignty from an invader which refused to budge. But it is true that in 73, even though it was an Egyptian war of self-defense, it is true Israeli casualties were significant. It was the last so-called war where Israel uh, suffered significant casualties. In 1967, it was about 800, though it was clearly an illegal war of aggression. 1973, uh, they suffered between two and 3,000 casualties. But after that, the wars were just high-tech um, mass murders by Israel, in which they suffered next to no casualties. Okay. Okay, so let's talk then about the borders. One of the reasons why I'm speaking to you here is to fill in blanks in my knowledge and understanding. So, first of all, why do we talk about Israel returning to its 1967 borders rather than its 1948 borders? Well, these are all, if we were in a seminar in international law, or if we were in a seminar on moral philosophy, these would all be legitimate questions in which um, there are arguments to be made on all sides. Yes, okay. However, I prefer to steer clear of such discussions because they are so indeterminate at the end of the day. You end up having to weigh the arguments on both sides, then apply your own individual judgment to decide which arguments predominate in the controversy. Uh, I think at the end of the day, those are matters of individual judgment. I prefer to just say, this is what 
has been resolved. Right. This is what is uh, hopefully achievable with the political will, given the international law and the agreements that uh, have been, been come to. I, it's not an illegitimate argument. Yeah. It's a perfectly legitimate argument. In a different forum, it would be perfectly reasonable to ask the question. To ask those questions. But would I be right in saying that your position is that's the conclusion that the international community reached, that is what we hope is achievable, and to try and rescind the whole thing and negotiate for something different at this juncture would be folly and counterproductive. So we accept the 67 borders because that's what could possibly reach wide support and there's a precedent for under international law. Look, the way you word it is perfect, and I could see you're familiar with how I think through these issues, so we're on the same wavelength. I don't even think we have to use the word accept. You're not accepting it, except in the sense that this is what the international community has resolved, and... Uh, we're prepared to negotiate and end the conflict on those terms. Okay. We don't even have to say accept the legitimacy of, because I think a lot of international law is completely bogus. Yeah. You know, I don't accept it, but I recognize there's not much alternative, alternative to uh, working with it. Okay, thank you. Now, the Israeli claim is that the 1960 borders aren't defensible. Mm -hmm. what, what do you say to that? I would say in the current world in which we live, which borders are defensible? You know, for 40 years, the United States is carrying out a terrorist war against Cuba. Every Central American country had come under U.S. rule after an invasion over a hundred year period. So does that mean that because clearly the borders of Cuba or Nicaragua clearly were indefensible, does that mean Cuba or Nicaragua had the right to annex Florida, Louisiana, Georgia, in order to make their borders defensible. There are many borders of countries in this world which, with only a wee bit of exaggeration, are roughly the perimeter of my computer screen. So, does that mean all these countries, Palau, Tuvalu, Nauru, all these countries, have the right to annex large swaths of land because no. their borders are indefensible? No, I, I don't suppose it does, but I, I guess the counter-argument would be that none of these places you've mentioned are surrounded by possibly hostile, sometimes openly hostile neighbours. Well, are you saying that the United States was not a hostile neighbor to Cuba. Um, no, not at all. 1959. 
that the Central American countries were not the object of U.S. invasion, U.S. And, uh, uh, occupation yeah. over and over and over again, that Mexico, half of which the United States stole, half of which the United States stole, is not in a position to assert its right to defensible borders on the basis of U.S. hostility, Leaving aside the not trivial fact that most of the countries in the Arab world are now aligned openly with Israel, that all the Gulf states aside from Qatar are openly aligned with Israel, that Saudi, the most powerful financial state mm. in the region, is openly aligned with Israel, that Jordan is openly aligned with Israel, that Egypt is openly aligned with Israel. So it seems to me that Israel, if that's its justification, that justification at least in terms of current political alignments, is totally absurd. Right. Thank you for that. Tell us about the Palestinian peace offensives because the narrative go sorry, yeah, the claim is made that Israel is defending itself and has the right to defence and that their incursions into Gaza and the West Bank are for the purposes of defence and or or in response rather, I should say in response to the breach of ceasefires by um, Palestinians and what the wider Arab population. What is this idea of Palestinian peace offensives? Well, first of all, I'm going to call you Dylan and Pavarotti. <laughs> okay. You, I think the world of you. You seem like an honest, idealistic young man. Okay. Mm -hmm. Who's this we're talking about? <laughs> oh. Me, naturally. Come on now. I know, look, I'm putting on a few pounds, Norman, but Pavarotti, for Christ's sake. I mean, <laughs> couldn't you think of a slimmer singer? <laughs> How about that? Haley Jackson. No, okay. So, <laughs> uh, but you're using too much Israeli propaganda language. These are not incursions they're murderous invasions okay I, right i'm just tell, i'm just telling you what you i'm setting them up you knock them down norman i i'm gonna pitch and you can hit it out of the park okay i think we have a future together <laughs> you and i especially when i get to hit the home run <laughs> okay um Okay. Although, although we may have somebody on at a later date who may try to refute some, <laughs> who may try to refute some of this, so they may catch you out. So I mean, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Uh, <laughs> you know it, what? It you, won't be Dershowitz. Anyway. Oh, you know what Joe Lewis, the boxer, famously said. Okay. In the, in the ring, he said, "You can run, but you can't hide." Right. To which I reply, 
no one catches Norman Finkelstein out. <laughs> you must have heard every claim going over and over again, so you know uh, you know exactly what you're going to hear, and you know exactly how to head it out the park. I just have to call up the right program for the question. Okay. For my brain. It's like the peace offensive. That expression was first used in the context of the June 1982 Israeli war on Lebanon. Yeah. And you have to go through from 1982 to the present, which, as you can calculate, is something yeah. on the order of 35 years. Sure. But your essential claim is that it isn't when the Palestinians are being violent that Israel commits violence upon them. It's when the Palestinians are being peaceful that Israel then provokes them. There are two aspects to that. First of all, every time Israel, every time the Palestinians launch a peace with uh, Israeli mainstream political scientist Avner Yaniv called a peace offensive, Every time the Palestinians call for a settlement of the conflict in accord with international law and UN resolutions, Israel panics and desperately seeks to provoke the Palestinians into violence so as to then delegitimize the Palestinians, pretend as if they're not seeking peace, and therefore to justify maintaining, preserving, extending the occupation of Palestinian lands. The second aspect of that question is vividly on display in the current demonstrations in Gaza, which to Israel's sheer horror, these demonstrations are overwhelmingly non-violent. And Israel, as it admitted, as it acknowledged, and now I'm quoting it, it said, we don't do Gandhi very well. Right. And what does that mean? It means when they're faced with non-violent civil resistance, mm. they can't bring to bear the full force of their high-tech killing machine. And so they don't know what to do to stop the demonstrations. Israel has only one tool in its toolbox, and that tool is murderous force. And so now Israel is targeting for assassination nonviolent civil protesters for two reasons. One, to terrorize the civilian population into submission. But two, and what's even more important, in order to provoke them into violence, in order to provoke them into resorting to their so-called rockets, so that Israel will have a pretense for bringing in its missiles, its bombs, its artillery, and will have a pretense to level Gaza again 
in order to stop this latest peace offensive, which is being waged with nonviolent resistance. Okay, thank you for that. Well, Norman, thank you so much for joining us. It sounds like when is this guy going to shut up already? We'll give you the lightning round next time, Norman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I look forward to our next conversation. I love you too. I like you guys. Yeah. You're like, a good team. Thank you.